0: Hey Vanessa.
1: Hey Dom. How goes?
0: I'm at the everything pisses me off stage of the day. Mm. Maybe of the week. Maybe of life.
1: <laughs> maybe
0: will something not piss me off in the future who knows
1: know. i'm in the just getting over a hangover part of the day which is way too late in the day to just be getting over the hangover so uh, i guess it's mildly better than the the rest of the day so that's you had okay. to
0: therapeutically leave the city in order to reach that stage apparently no,
1: i was very queasy in the in the in the in the rural lands of Long Island, <laughs> but I returned, I ate, and now I feel more like
0: myself. Human, humanoid, yes. human adjacent. More
1: humanoid, less angry than a dom.
0: So, so to hopefully ameliorate said rage, we mm-hmm. have today the brilliant Christine Rosen.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, Christine is a senior fellow at AEI, co-host of the Commentary Podcast, and also a senior writer at Commentary Magazine, and she was an excellent guest
0: did you mention co-host of Commentary Podcast? I did. I did. Oh, wow, I should listen to you next time. <laughs> She's one of those people that I've been just waiting for the right excuse to invite. Yeah. So the excuse was mm-hmm. her recent article about trauma. So if if you all listen to our episode with Misha Thomas from ah, ages ago, mm-hmm. you'll know that I have a problem. I've been having this repressed. Anger about the overuse and oversaturation of trauma as a concept in the public discourse, in day to day use, in the media, political analysis, just trauma everywhere.
1: And in policy increasingly too.
0: It's something that I had a visceral reaction to, but never took the time to seriously flesh out. And thankfully, now I don't need to because Christine did that. Mm-hmm. So, in addition to a deep trauma being overrepresented in popular culture and what the pernicious effects of this are, we also talked about uh, our favorite topic: the media and its obsession with panic porn
1: and the general gloominess of media. I mean, one of the what Christine does at commentary is is keep an eye on what the outlets are doing, and one of the big
0: O outlets,
1: big big O, what is that?
0: The outlets. <laughs> it's like the apps, <laughs> the or outlets regime.
1: Oh, you say big O, I think of Oprah, but, uh, or orgasms. I did. <laughs> That's what it comes to mind. Anyway, back on, back on track. She points out that the, the, particularly in left-leaning media, but not exclusively the gloominess of it all. And that really resonated with me. They
0: are dour, aren't they?
1: <clears throat> mm, we talked about history a little bit.
0: Oh yes. So Christine, who's a historian by education, literally wrote the book about eugenics, hmm. um, not the not the how to book so much as the historical r- review of <laughs> eugenics as an intellectual movement. Could um, you
1: imagine?
0: For that yeah, for the how to, you'd have to look somewhere else. I'm afraid.
1: <laughs> no, this is not. So I'm your not sure that's a podcast for
0: you. For you. Yeah. <laughs> um, all,
1: all of a sudden, all the eugenics supporters are are unsubscribing in anger damn. on certain things.
0: <laughs> and for our paid subscribers, we are going to have a special (laughs) post-trauma conversation. Just Vanessa and I riffing on some aspects that we didn't get to drill into with Christine, specifically this concept of trauma plot in fiction narratives. So if Mm -hmm. you want more about trauma and our feels and thoughts about it yes um, you can subscribe to us on uncertain.substack.com and paid subscribers get the, the, the tasty additional content
1: yeah and I don't know if it's a draw or not but we're gonna actually put on a video camera for those so you'll get to see our faces definitely so.
0: not a draw that's definitely.
1: you know it's, you know I'm, we're gonna get all, they're all gonna come a running now to see what we look <laughs> like and, um, and why we're doing radio
0: exactly Exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah and you Know sign up to the in the regular places if you want to support us. Five stars on Apple Podcasts goes a long way, and um, share us with your friends and enemies. And with that,
1: Christine Rosen, we have a lot of questions. For we'll you. probably
0: get like <laughs> to say, question number two. Yeah, I know. Um, so, uh, Christine, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, Pleasure to be on. But uh, you, you have a background in history, right? Yes. And I think, if I'm not totally mistaken, so when I was a wee undergrad in history in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, one of my projects was to write the wiki page in Hebrew about eugenics. And, oh. I'm, and I'm pretty sure you were one of my sources in that <laughs> development. I was actually going to ask you not about eugenics, <laughs> like eugenics, good or bad, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, wanted, I wanted your thought as somebody with a... With a Thorough, in depth background in history. What's your feeling about the place of history in the public discourse right now?
2: Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, I think about this a lot in private, but when I try to talk to people about it, particularly people who think, oh, yeah, history is that class I took. I, I know a little bit of it. I occasionally read a political biography, so I'm well informed. <laughs> Um, I think it's nowhere near as centered in the public discourse as it needs to be. And the reason I say that is the kinds of terms and the kinds of phrases and words we use to describe current events are often heavily freighted uh, with history. And we're kind of throwing these terms around like authoritarian and fascist and, you know, all all kinds of very strong words that have particularly historical meanings Um, and that have a real deep past that should inform our discussion and our use of it. And so there's a lot of hubris in our invocation of history and not a lot of depth in our understanding of how complicated those histories are. They don't necessarily prove what either side wants them to prove. They're used in incredibly instrumental ways, particularly by political figures that I find uh, obscures more than it reveals about the past and, and about the present. So I'm concerned. It's also a field that has, you know, it, it has some politicization issues uh, that have emerged. And so there are people who claim to speak for an entire field that really have no business speaking for anyone but themselves, particularly on social media. So we all could do with some more history, but I, in, in the sense of studying those parts of the past for which we have contemporary interest. So if you're, for example, someone who's just lived through a pandemic, it might (laughs) be useful to go back and reread about, you know, early 20th century responses to the the Spanish flu or to read about how other countries and other civilizations have dealt with these kind of seismic changes. It gives perspective, but what it mainly gives is something we definitely don't have in public discourse these days, and that's humility. I was macetating humility <laughs> ahead of you. So I was
0: like, yep, <laughs> that's the thing. But what's worse? Because too- when you really study history, and I'm going to let you finish your question, for this, but it's just from the, when you actually get into the field seriously, that's the thing you get, that the more you learn, the more you feel, you know, tampered in the kind of political and ideological certainties that you had when you entered into it. Because you mm-hmm. see, the things are rich and complex. And when you try to just place them into a single narrative, it's fun and it's a fun exercise, but you also discover how easy it is to do, which makes you doubt the veracity of attempts to do so. Anyway, Vanessa. Oh, I was
1: going to say, well, I was struck by your answer in that it sounded like a lot of what you were saying was we have too little history in the public discourse, but you could also make the argument that we have too much poor history in the public discourse, right? So which, what's worse?
2: Well, <laughs> oh, I like that. Yes, that, I like that. That's actually, that's a, that's a better way of putting it. I agree. And, I, and I'll say, I... My my argument for humility is a personal story because when I went into the archives to study what motivated a bunch of um, pretty well educated, you know, seemingly well intentioned people in the United States to to start practicing eugenics and start trying to to prevent people from having children because they thought those children would be so called feeble minded, I had to really set aside my own contemporary uh, assumptions and I read their letters and you read the kind of complicated. Uh, sort of uh, self-rationalizations they made, and, and some of it was not persuasive to me, but some of it helped me really understand just how complicated they were. And it, what history should teach us is that there are some consistencies, mainly with regard to human nature. What we, what we kind of tend to do either as individuals and particularly as groups, as nation states, that's where I think the humility needs to come in. But vanessa, I love that that phrasing because that's actually quite right. We have a lot of history talk, but we don't actually have a lot of understanding of the past
0: so what's your feelings when you hear about the um historians crowding the White House and sharing counsel about the destiny of the Biden administration <laughs>
2: I think, it, so look, if you, I mean, I am not an academic historian by practice. I have a lot of friends who are still in academia who teach and, you know, they're professors and they love it. They love their jobs. They're wonderful teachers. They, they love their students. Uh, but there is always a little bit of a, of a kind of, um, if you're a historian, you kind of work in the shadows, right? You're in the background, you're slogging away in the archives, you're writing your books, you're teaching your students to be invited to the White House to tell a sitting president what they should think about is incredibly intoxicating. I will note that most, you know, uh, Sean Mulance was one of the historians there. I admire his work very much. Um, But, you know, Michael Beschloss is a TV historian. That's what I would call him. He's written lots of great books. That's fine. But he's a pundit. He's a pundit more than he is a historian. He's He's a television figure more than he is a historian. Um, I'm not sure the advice that a Michael Beschloss would give our current president is going to be all that better than than our current president just reading some good history books. But I, I see the impulse. There's also, of course, if you're in power, if you're the president, regardless of your party or creed, the idea of gathering smart people around you and you're going to learn from them. I mean, it's a nice image. Um, I just don't know how helpful historians are when it comes to daily policymaking and daily executive decision making. That's not really what history is supposed to be good at doing.
0: <laughs> uh, to be as generous as possible, the problem should be not with the, the idea of surrounding yourself with a variety of intellectuals. It's, mm-hmm. it's more a question maybe of how much variety is there. It's question number one. But also question number two, how you end up synthesizing it yourself. So it's right. the responsibility of the decision maker to not just say, well, Ann Applebaum said that democracy is ending and therefore I should like, pass another executive order to ban whatever. Fox News. Right.
2: And I admire Anne and her work a great
0: deal as well, but yes. She's a fantastic writer and her her writing about the developments in the former Soviet bloc is amazing. And it's also totally fine if she draws conclusions about what's going on in America. I, I often agree with her, but it's for a good leader to hear them out, but then synthesize it with more information and not just follow a grad narrative of history just because a few historians have reached a certain conclusion.
2: Well, and I I will say by concern with the group, as this was described, you know, by someone who obviously was there immediately ran and told the Washington Post, which is, which is what, you know, this is how these things always occur. Uh, I was, I was concerned by how much uh, most of the people there are sort of on the record um, being pretty alarmist about our current situation and about the future health of our democracy. I don't share that alarmism. I have a lot of concerns But I I worried when I saw the, I'm like, these are all people who've been publicly kind of ringing a bell uh, and then that bell has one note. And the thing is, there are many notes to to what's going (laughs) on right now. And I fear, I hope he also brought in some people who who had alternative views of the current situation.
0: So actually, Mm -hmm. so... The way we structured the interview, and this is this is classic us, um, one of the most uncertain things about uncertain things is the order of the conversation. So <laughs> <laughs> we really wanted to dive early on into your article about mm-hmm. trauma because this is something that I've been itching to talk about. We actually had one conversation with um, our friend and uh, group psychologist, Misha Thomas, who we're mm-hmm. going to bring up later in the conversation. But since you talk about talked about the pessimism, I think this is a mm-hmm. good pivot to... Uh, to your article about panic addiction, mm-hmm. panic porn.
1: Yeah, I, I, I love that article that you wrote about. It was about the Atlantic specifically, and you had that one line that was like, wow, this is this is Eeyore meets Nietzsche <laughs> <laughs> shit right now, which I loved. I mean, you didn't say shit, but I'm paraphrasing.
2: Um, I was thinking it, so good. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> um, but, I, but I wanted to talk about the, that article because I think... I mean, we can talk about it specifically with the Atlantic. And then we can also kind of extrapolate to what this doominess means beyond, right? Because I don't think the Atlantic is alone here. I am am left-leaning. I consume left-leaning media. And the doominess is one of the things that has gotten most kind of overwhelming, I would say. And one of the joys of doing uncertain things is that we talk to people kind of more center-right-ish and who are less pessimistic about everything all the time. And so I guess to start, I guess my first question for you is, wh- what do you think this lib- this kind of trend on the liberal media side is doing to liberal brains? Because I see some real ramifications, and I'm curious to get your take on how you see it impacting.
0: And I'm just going to intercede, because that's another one of our trademarks, as so those intercessions, I'm just going to intercede quickly. I Because th- I don't think that the center rights are necessarily more optimistic, but I think where we landed is that a general pessimism that comes with conservatism about human nature gives you a little more chill about, <laughs> yeah, this is not, this is nothing new. Everything is the end of the world, so
2: nothing is. Right. So that these, that's a, That's a good way of of uh, framing this. I w- I will say I ended up writing about um, the Atlantic in particular because I am a loyal reader. I mm-hmm. I read broadly. Across, I mean, I'm I consider myself conservative. I, but I'm not extreme right wing, but I read all across the aisle just because I'm curious. I, I think your views are not uh, well held if you can't test them against the opposite view. So I just had noticed creeping into, a, and I have friends, uh, lovely friends who write for The Atlantic. So I, it's not a publication I have any sort of hatred for or anything, but it was bugging me. Like like you said, Vanessa, it's like you notice it and you start going, well, wh- why? Why is this happening? And, and I did notice all that. The top you know the top reads, you know how they rank all the articles if you go to their website, they were largely this kind of doom saying about everything about the climate, about you know our politics, about leadership, about obviously during the pandemic, same thing um, and it struck me that at first I thought it was going in this direction because of the pandemic. People were at home. They were doom scrolling, you know, the CDC uh, the bulletins and statistics every day. You're looking at your dashboard for COVID. It was a very stressful, you know, historically unusual uh, turn of events for, for people in this country. And, and obviously a very tragic one for many, many families who, who lost loved ones. So it, it, it struck me as kind of uh, useful for the current mood. Then I thought, but wait a minute, because it's one thing to be pessimistic and doomsaying, but usually that, that's for a larger purpose. Like, okay, we're in a mess here. We've created a mess or a mess has been put, uh, pushed upon us. What do we do to fix it? What are our next steps? And the Atlantic has always had a kind of pragmatic, practical angle um, from its inception. The idea was it's engaging culture and policy at the same time um, across the broad middle, Uh, And it had a kind of, that American pragmatic spirit was always something I loved about the magazine. And I didn't see that anywhere. I just saw hand wringing and I just saw people waving their hands in horror. Um, And it was a kind of a nonpartisan tone. So that's why I went after it, because I thought, Mm -hmm. enough wallowing. Why are we wallowing? Um, We all know things are bad. We know where they're bad. What about, what comes next? How do we have conversations, particularly nowadays across the aisle? Um, about fixing this stuff, because that's where I think a lot of Americans, just regular people who are not plugged into inside the Beltway politics or into any sort of extremes of culture, just the regular person who turns on the TV and sees all this doom and gloom or scrolls through you know, the internet and sees doom and gloom. And then their obvious thought is, okay, well now what? And it's incumbent on our cultural elites to answer that question. And too often, and I, I absolutely include myself in this indictment, too often, it's a lot more fun to point out all the errors. It's much harder to start trying to solve the problem. So I i did that as an exercise, and this is what's frustrating me. Why are they doing this? Um, and it was kind of heartening to hear from a lot of people, mainly on the left side of the aisle, who had exactly your reaction, Vanessa, which is, yeah, it's not just the Atlantic. There's, there's a There's a tone abroad in the land and in the broad middle of cultural products that's Kind of depressing, <laughs> and we needed to think about why that was the case. So that, um, and again, I go to the hyperbole of a lot of the language used. I think I think words matter. I'm a person who makes my living with words. Words matter, and I I was really concerned about the kind of the the level of of language that was used in a lot of these pieces that that seemed like hyperbole to me in a magazine that wasn't really known for hyperbole. It was known for excellent writing and thoughtful, you know, sophisticated critique.
1: Yeah. And the, and the way that I see it impacting the people around me, I think it, people tend to have two types of reactions to this onslaught of doominess. I think it's either this passivity because it's like, whoa, I, I throw up my hands. How could I even as a tiny person even begin to help with this onslaught of terribleness everywhere always? On the one hand, or it's a very fire brandy, like let's burn it all down. It's like this is everything's (laughs) terrible. We got to start over. Um, And so I feel like this these these are the two streams that I see now on the liberal side of, uh, partly as a result of all of this like overwhelming anxiety
0: and increasingly the conservative side.
2: Mm. Yes, and I was going to say yes. The conservatives have versions Mm. less of the we can't do anything, we're just passive. More of the fire brand, fire breathing, burn it all down. Take
0: an AR fifteen to the FBI. Yes. Yes,
2: exactly. Like, I mean, I th- no, that's absolutely right. And I think, honestly, one of the appeals during lockdown for, and I talked to a lot of friends who are avid, not just Atlantic readers, but, you know, sort of making sure that I wasn't just overreacting to this tone. Was I seeing something that wasn't there? And they said something interesting to me. It's like, well, what, you know, it's kind of a, a welcoming uh, excuse to make for oneself. If things are so overwhelming... Well, what can i what can one little person do it's like the the recycling challenge versus global warming you're like well is putting this can in this bag and putting it on the curb really going to change if it's if we're all going to burn to death in 20 years you know like so i mean but the apocalypse we are addicted to a kind of apocalypse a, uh, apocalyptic way of looking at what are actually complicated but practical problems so you're absolutely right i think that that gives people a, a way to justify maybe not doing anything or a justification for unholy rage
1: so, one of the things that, that kind of I was also thinking though as I was reading the article was like a little bit of so, so what? Like, if the Atlantic is selling subscriptions, if it's making money, it is a private enterprise. It's clearly getting traction with people, it's getting subscriptions by peddling and anxiety. Um, so, to a certain extent, it's like, well, that's its, its prerogative. If its audience has become, if this is what its audience wants and that's how they're going to make money, then so they should go forth and make this doom. Do media, how that they libertarian
0: want. of you, Vanessa? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but then, of course, I was as I was thinking about like how to ask you about this question. I was like, well, of course, the 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 other side of this is that it's not just the Atlantic; it's a lot of different liberal outlets that are peddling to the same exact small elite, peddling in the same exact anxieties, and I think that obviously creates less room for quote-unquote regular people, non-elites, to find uh, in- interesting quality media and also gives these elites a very uh, abstract awareness of what's actually happening in the world. There is no actual connection with what's happening to quote-unquote regular people. But then uh, my my question for you is what are we supposed to do about that because we have a private media system we have an ad-based subscription-based model for the media i'm assuming you're not for a public system so barring that mm-hmm. what is the solution to creating a more healthy media ecosystem no,
0: it's, not to over uh, strain the the metaphor i think that there is it makes me think of the some of the lawsuits against drug companies and opiate manufacturers how much should we hold them responsible for the opiate epidemic? There is a real addiction and the addiction to doom scrolling and to read another article about how democracy is crumbling. And you can see that the threshold is constantly rising because it's no longer enough just to go to MSNBC and Fox News to get your partisan take. You need to to go further. You need to go to Newsmax. You need to go to, I don't know, The Root. That's a form of real addiction. To what extent do you hold the manufacturers responsible for that? (laughs)
2: That's a good question. And I think um, all of this, we should, we're talking about how people read. And we all know most of us probably do this ourselves. We read on a screen, we read on our phones. um, We get a lot of, uh, you know, most people under the age of 30 in this country don't read newspapers or even watch television. They watch TikTok, YouTube, and they, you know, get all their news from social media links. Fine, that's the world we live in. But those platforms reward fear and anger above everything else that's what drives engagement engagement to them is all that matters it doesn't matter if it comes from happy puppies frolicking with cats or if it comes from you know people writing their manifesto about how they're going to burn down the FBI they'll take whatever gets more clicks so that's the that's the environment we live in and i think why i was particularly harsh with an institution like the atlantic is that they do hold themselves to a higher standard they they don't just say we just publish a magazine and we you know this is our ethos it's we are a brand that embodies the best of American culture. They put on an Ideas Festival. You know, they have all these sort of you know um, uh, branded exercises in Atlantic type thinking, many of which are really good. You right, know, lofty I mean,
0: celebrations exactly, of the American dialect.
2: Exactly, but at those lofty celebrations, just as at like other lofty celebrations, like Davos and the Aspen Ideas Festival. <laughs> They're, all you see are elites talking to other elites about how to solve the problems of non that, that they do believe <laughs> non-elites are causing them or the mm. rest of the world. And that's where the democracy doomsaying gets me angry. That's where I come into the anger. I'm thinking people being outraged and doing kind of crazy stuff in a democracy has been going on. First of all, we get to the history point again. I mean, read a book about 19th century politics. We look tame by comparison today. We really still do. Like crazy stuff happened all the time in, the, in a young nation that didn't quite know what it was doing. And we're a bunch of hotheads. We're a violent people. This has been the case consistently since the founding. So that gives you perspective. But the difference now is that I feel the cultural institutions in this country are largely controlled by people who have a lot of uh, background similarities, even if they're not, you know, they don't look the same, but they are educated in similar institutions with similar values and similar ideas that come out of those institutions with a worldview. And a lot of that is problem solving, which can be very useful and very good for society. But a lot of a lot more of it lately seems to be pointing at others who seem to be a problem because they're not on board with your worldview. And that's where this cla- the democratic clash is supposed to be healthy and productive because we have to come to some um, compromise about the about what the world should look like. And instead, we have you know more moral peacocking. You have people going, "Well, if you don't agree with me, then you're bad. You're a bad person," and they. All this othering, as the sociological theorists would call it, that's happening all the time, and both sides do it. Um, that's dangerous, though, if you're the people in charge of the cultural institutions that actually do have real power. The mainstream media has power in this country, so that the, goes to the to, to the big debate that uh, I would always have, and my own opinions,
0: and it would shift constantly. Um, I remember. Uh, when I was um, working in a, a little media, political media startup, with um, with two other guys, one of them was a conservative and uh, the other one was a progressive, and I was the kind of the wild card between them. And uh, the conservatives used to be the, uh, I think, a managing editor in uh, Free Beacon. He used to bring up the the classic conservative grievance about liberal hegemony and control of the cultural mainstream, hmm. and the response to that would be like, "Yeah, but you know." The populist force of right-wing media is enormous. You can't just keep going to the well of liberals control the the mainstream elite as a perpetual excuse for an inferiority complex. True, they have outsized influence in some established elite institutions, but their audience is shrinking. Their real-world democratic influence is diminishing practically in many parts of the country. Mm. How can you underestimate just how powerful conservative media is in that sense? And conservative media is maybe at, at, at our current moment and maybe generally true, more attuned to populist outrage that you're describing.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yes. yes.
0: This argument about the responsibility that uh, the, the media elites need to hold themselves to, or partly because they pretend to hold themselves to these higher standards, is used to exonerate bad behavior or at least to shrug off responsibility for the cheap fermenting of outrage and sometimes violence under the excuse that we are just giving voice to the unheard. I just see that also as a reckless abdication of elite responsibility just on the right.
2: With some versions of this uh, more reckless than others,
0: like big R regime.
2: Oh, I hate that. Don't get me started on the regime talk. No, but this is actually a really important point because I think right now... um, I think you're right, and and, uh, the thing about conservative media is that it's still in a weirdly unhealthy and parasitic relationship with the mainstream media. Simply because it hasn't built up uh, over generations, cadres of reporters and journalists who kind of came of age through institutions that encourage the same values that conservative media wants to promote. That and Carlson originally wanted to do that, right? With Daily Crime, right. that was the vision. That was that was the vision, and and there's been it's really strange how reactionary a lot of outlets. Um, some were born and raised to be reactionary. That was their that was their uh, purpose. But I think. It, that's a real weakness of conservative media still is that there's is not that cultivation of that kind of solid um, you know objective reporting the kind of thing that that it's very easy to criticize the mainstream media when they fail to do that so I guess my my beef with mainstream media though remains because I'm conservative and I do <laughs> largely concert I, I consume mainstream media look I read The New York Times The Wall Street Journal the Washington Post every day those are my three papers Um and it is shocking to me how the, the, the shift in narrative building in mainstream media now is, I think, what gets a lot of the populist outrage types going. And it's real. It's, it, it's, it's not simply, uh, it's certain things are not allowed to be talked about kind of theme. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, well, we don't say this. And if you're a person living in a city, for example, where there was a lot of rioting or where crime rates have spiked, and you're reading your paper and it's like, it's really not a problem. That's what you're reading. You're thinking, but I look out my window and I see it's right. a problem. Where, where are the people who are speaking to my concerns? Politicians are having this problem, too, but they're at least accountable at the voting booth. People who control media institutions are not in that same way. As Vanessa said, it's, it's a private enterprise. It's driven by clicks and profit making. So you're absolutely right. I think I agree entirely with your criticism of conservative media. But I do think it's healthy. Remember, this is a democracy where, uh, in, in its early days, every political party had its own newspaper that was published that was completely partisan on its own side. In maybe, in some ways, our our attempt to think we're above partisanship and that there is such a thing as objective media is was just a blip, right, of the <laughs> sort of mid twentieth right. century, late into early twenty first century blip, and it might be gone now.
1: To put your feet to the fire a little bit, Christine, because you said that. You're very good at pointing out problems, but less good at pointing <laughs> out solutions, which I also, I think we all do. But do you see a a solution? I mean, again, I mean, I threw out a public media system, but like, what what are ways that we and the the incentives just aren't there to fix the problem? It seems.
2: Yeah, I think. Well, for one thing, um, conservative media has an obligation to to train, to recruit, to train, and to insist on. Uh, objective reporting, if, it, if it's going to hold the mainstream media's feet to the fire. And that does require money. I mean, you know, mm. in order to have a foreign bureau overseas, you have to have a media institution that can afford to send people there and keep them safe and allow them to do their work. And right now, most of the mainstream media outlets, they're even cutting back on that, right? I mean, um, honestly, if I could do one solution, if I was a billionaire and I could create one solution, it would be to go back to um, encouraging and nurturing local journalists So this is one area where I think social media has actually been effective because it's allowed local people here in D.C. We have this guy, D.C. Real Time News, who just started out with a Twitter handle. He has a full time job, but he just would like drive around and he'd show up at crime scenes and he'd ask questions and he'd post stuff on his Twitter feed. And he now he works for a local news outlet, too. But he was just a guy who in his neighborhood was not seeing local issues covered in the way he wanted. So he did it himself. Um, and that that impulse is real. That's such a wonderful American entrepreneurial impulse. Too, he's not getting paid. He's doing it because he cares about it, and his community cares about it. And we've lost a lot of that kind of local journalist sensibility. Those also the places where uh, young journalists could learn their trade. They had to go to city council meetings. They had to sit in boring, you know, boring places and report on boring things that actually were very important for for civic governance. And I think if you have a 20 something who comes out of an Ivy League school and is dropped at a at a news reporting desk at the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal and has been raised to believe that they are fighting injustice as a journalist, but hasn't done the work, there can be huge gaps in the questions they even they don't even know what they don't know to ask. And so that's where if I had a solution and I had the money to do it, I would invest in in kind of nurturing that local the local newspaper or the local whatever you I guess it would all be a local website now, but right. Local journalism.
0: I mean, I think part of it has to be also, at some point, conservative media has to grow out of its, uh, I mean... Toddler to, fate. Angry, angry toddler. Right. It's arrested <laughs> development. Or to foreshadow a conversation, it's uh, uh, grievance trauma. Yes. <laughs> the, the way I imagine it, it's like a kid who grew up with a parent that was constantly berating and somewhat abusive, saying, you're not going to amount to anything, you're a loser. But now the kid is 40 and a successful doctor, a multimillionaire, but still gets shattered every time they go on the phone with their parents. Like they would throw a tantrum, you ruined my life. I'm like, no, your, your life is good. You're fine. <laughs>
2: well, yeah. Yeah. Well, vict- look, victim status in our culture, uh, and Christopher Lash wrote about this a generation, several generations ago now, and he was spot on then, and it's still true now. Victims have status now. So if you're a conservative, uh, you know, uh, writer, you want to play the victim just as much as everybody else does, right? It's like, oh, I'm the subject of X, Y, or Z bias. or that it, it's, much, it's such an easy and comfortable yeah. position for people to step into. We've all done, it. I mean, it's, 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 again, I go to the human nature point, but I do think you're absolutely right that conservative media needs to grow out of the constant grievance because if you, and I like, for example, I'll cite you know, Barry Weiss, for example, who's not a conservative, but is someone who actually is trying to build something new. She's like, I was here at the New York Times. I yeah. didn't fit in. We had a lot of ideological stuff. So she left and she didn't do it just, and she could have spent the rest of her career being paid by conservative places to go give talks complaining about the New York Times. Mm-hmm. She didn't do that. She's, a, she's, on, you know, she's younger. She's like, I'm going to build something new and I'm going to take a gamble. And she's doing that. Um, that's actually the attitude I would like to see more of on the conservative side. Not just pointing the finger, but saying, okay, now here's what we're going to do to fix it. And look, places like the Free Beacon, other, other new little... Scrappy places. They they're they're trying to do that. They they're trying to build something uh, new.
0: To some extent, the Washington Examiner does some great reporting. Yes, but okay. Uh, the the thing is that it always you'll they'll always have a side that will pander to the grievance because it's just part. Of, it's part of the bread and butter. The journalism right. is is the the cherry on top. Um, <laughs> Okay, so the episode is probably going to be released in a week. so who knows what's going to happen politically in, in this time if we'll even be here?
1: Dom, you're just catering to the doom the doom <laughs> listeners <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's where we subscribers theme. clearly <laughs> no, I guess actually, when I think about it, we are that's that's our bread and butter yeah, too. the doom uh, the doominess uh, uh,
0: <laughs> mild uh mild gloom <laughs> Unnu. We're more in the ennui business. No, there you go. That's better. <laughs> so there's been a lot of news recently but we don't know much about it. I'm kind of in a purgatory mm-hmm. state of information when it comes to the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. The Justice Department has retrieved a bunch of documents, and as far as we know, they're Schrodinger's documents. We have no idea whether what they contain is important or not. And as far as I'm concerned, nobody should have, or at least voice publicly, an opinion about this, because we have no idea what's in those documents. Nevertheless, opportunists on the left have been using it to. Stoke the excitement of the law is finally closing in on Trump. They finally got him while the right was fanning the flames of defund the FBI, of all things, and civil war. My question to you, in a moment like this where a total dearth of information has been filled by empty partisan outrage, how should an average news consumer navigate this uncertainty?
2: Um, not to sound like an after-school special, which does date me age-wise, um, but there's a kind of teachable moment here in that. Um, and thats it's very difficult not to leap to conclusions because everything about how, our, how we consume news and everything about our uh, current cultural environment uh, makes present present circumstances always more important than what came just before or what might come just after. So this constant hyper-presentism is really difficult when we have uncertainty. And if you add in this particular case, um, particularly the Justice Department and and the FBI as an institution, um, we know just from surveys over the last 5, 10, 15 years, that Americans' faith in a lot of our institutions is on the decline. It's been going on for a while. It accelerated during the pandemic. um, And that includes law enforcement at every level. And it's been interesting to me to, I've had a lot of squabbles both on air and off with my colleagues at Commentary Magazine about this because I understand when a sort of uh, Trump supporting, I'm not, don't happen to be a Trump supporter myself, but when Trump supporting people look at the FBI, there's a whole history there with regard to how the FBI handled itself during the Trump presidency that can and should make them suspicious of anything that happens. And they don't have the patience to sit by and wait. They're instantly going to condemn it. My problem is with the fact that elected officials, leaders of this country, should not be doing it that at all. Their job is to say, we'll wait and see what happens. We don't know. We, of course, have concerns some, about how the FBI has behaved in the past. We're going to just have to wait and see. And to keep people calm, it's obviously not. I mean, elected members of Congress uh, saying some of the things they've said in the last few days is, is appalling. It's astonishing. Um, But I would hope that what people can do now is think about whatever comes out of this, how we rebuild that trust in institutions. Because ultimately, whether you're on the left or the right, that's eroding. And that's bad for everyone. Because if we don't trust uh, our law enforcement institutions to do the right thing, if we don't trust the people who are in charge at the very upper echelons of leadership to be honest with the public when they're asked to answer questions about what's going on, that's bad. Because, you know, if you if you sweep out every Democrat and stuff Republicans in there, that trust problem is still there. It's still there. So I, that's what really worries me, that trust in Congress is on the decline, in the Supreme Court, in the presidency. These are all important and valuable institutions. This is the heart of democracy. Um, and I, I worry about that. And so this is another one of those cases where I think our media environment encourages us to rush to judgment and to choose sides. And you can't do that yet. There's just simply not enough information.
0: Um, in the, can it be restored... When, even if we, like, any attempt to agree on first principles, I think would be somewhat disingenuous, at least from the political class. Mm-hmm. Like, I think most normal people would just want, like, a functioning government and would probably agree exactly. on what that entails. It means... Right. uh we want an fbi we want policing and we want it to also be fair and we want it to not be biased either by by race or politics or by class or what we want it to be exactly um equally dispensed justice like that's a shocking desire for her. and and we want order and safety in our society and we want corrupt people to 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 be removed from um power, power. yeah Yep. so Yeah, that's normal Sounds like a
1: good platform, Adam. You're ready. (laughs) There you you go. go.
2: 2024, man.
0: (laughs) The basic party.
2: (laughs) The basic bitch party. (laughs) Oh, I like that. I would vote for that. Yeah, me
0: too. (laughs) The problem is that the political class, and I include media in it, is being disingenuous. When one side says, and and that hypocrisy applies to both, when one side says, we just want impartial enforcement, they don't actually mean that because both sides have shown over the past 20 years just how yeah. unperturbed they are with partial enforcements when the target is their political enemies or just causes they don't care about.
2: Well, this, this is a good point because I think what it points to is a larger, two larger crises that are going, uh, that are at the heart of the, the decline in, in trust in institutions. And that's a crisis of evidence People don't trust evidence, and because they vet who the evidence comes from, who said it, where did it come from, and and uh, the legitimacy crisis. Because my I, I would distinguish between um, at this point a Trump supporter who is like, I really don't trust the FBI. That's that's a totally legitimate thing for that person to say. But to say the FBI is illegitimate is different. I that's undermining an institution that this this nation. We need some sort of uh, federal Bureau of Investigation to keep order, as you as you said. Um, so I think that that, again, we go to language, we go to the tone, but those two crises, the fact that we don't agree on what facts are is really, really a problem here because again, we're going to hear, we hear spin and, and, and we're served up a constant diet of, of, uh, narratives from either side. And then you choose your narrative and then you got to stick with your narrative. And then when, when evidence appears that undermines your narrative, you have to make a choice. Am I going <laughs> to stick with the narrative or I'm going to rethink it? This whole podcast is about rethinking, you know, when evidence comes in going, eh, maybe un- uncertainty is actually a really important democratic value, particularly in policymaking. Um, but that, I do think our media environment is, is the opposite of that.
1: Mm. Shall we get into trauma, Adon? <laughs> <Yes. laughs>
0: Uh, so i i'm feeling'm I'm feeling already trying for,
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> for some trauma talk
0: so I, th- I, th- I think a funny way to start it i was uh, I, I had um you
1: had Segwise in mind i'm so sorry
0: uh, <laughs> i just i had drinks with a friend of the pod butun garsar gone the other day, and uh she said during the conversation something about your p t s d and it took me a second to think what what p t s d is that oh, right she meant the thing that happens sometimes when I lose sleep, because I, I, I grew up in Jerusalem during the Second Intifada, and you know, buses and coffee shops were exploding all around. One bus right next to my high school, some friends from high school were killed, family members. And today, sometimes, for instance, when, there were, when the war in Ukraine broke, it can evoke some of that anxiety, But I would never think to refer to it honestly, sincerely, publicly as as a PTSD. Having seen Mm -hmm. real PTSD, the kind that friends who went to the army come back with, people who actually saw war or experienced sexual abuse, people whose entire life is now debilitated because of the condition, what I'm experiencing is just anxiety. Who in the world doesn't experience anxiety Who in the world doesn't have some formative bad experiences that still sometimes come to hunt them? Doesn't matter if it's being in Jerusalem in 2003 or being in a bad relationship. It could be anything, but that's normal. That's not PTSD. And so the context of this rant is that I think we've all noticed that trauma as a concept has completely saturated the popular culture as well as the political sphere. Every bad experience that has a lingering effect is seen as the traumatic result of a violent act. In popular culture, in personal interactions, in politics, it's as if we don't have a way to find value or to assess a situation or a relationship without reading it through the lens of damage and trauma and PTSD I think you can tell that I have a very negative opinion of this development, but you wrote the commentary article about it. What do you think?
2: <laughs> well, actually, I I ended up writing this piece. You you know, if you you write and you think about ideas a lot, yeah, I, I keep little you know little gatherings of string. I gather string on certain ideas, and this one I've been gathering off and on for some time. It started with um, you know, I have I have. Uh, close family members and, and uh, some very, a few very good friends who have experienced the kind of trauma that you're describing, you know whether it was uh, seeing combat, uh, violent assault, um, the kinds of things that I think as a society and a culture we always understood to be traumatic. That's how the word was used. Um, soldiers who had been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress syndrome, it's something that's a real, or, or people who've been the victim of, of violence and, and had that kind of diagnosed experience and struggled with it because it is, it is a, a struggle. And I started to become very annoyed when I'd see this term pop up. in, in And it actually started with a friend who's a, who's a vet who uh, we were in a group conversation and someone said, oh, I totally have PTSD because they didn't have this brand of soap at the Whole Foods or something. And I saw him get like tense. This is a very laid back guy. And I later asked him, I'm like, Are you okay? And he's like, I hate when people say that. He said, because not because he just said it just bothers me because I don't think they understand what trauma is and we shouldn't use that term and that what that's what got the gears working for me and at the same time, I am I have a completely shallow but totally obsessive uh, focus on on the crazy kind of self care stuff we see in our culture mm-hmm. the sort of everything is self care right like you can be a total jerk to your friends you'd be like but it's self care I had to be honest it's my true self this idea of uh, performative authenticity. Um, started at a certain point just a few years ago to really uh, merge with the trauma talk in a way that I thought was really pernicious for understanding both what individual people need to be healthy individuals and also what we what we owe to the people in our society who have been victims of of genuinely traumatic experiences so i there there are a couple books but um also no, that because, uh, because
0: just to explain, to yeah. stay on that point about the combination with the the, the self care it's, it's pernicious because it makes cultivating your trauma as central to your identity, crucial yes. to the curation of your brand.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and you see this on TikTok. TikTok has this whole thing of like people who talk about their trauma and tell you what to do about oh, this was traumatic, this was traumatic. And it is, it's literally a personal identity, a personal brand, and decisions flow from that. Also, it allows for permanent victim status. So you can, any anytime you don't turn an assignment in, and I know this from my friends who are teachers both at the secondary education level and beyond, you know, they'll say, people go, well, I'm a victim of trauma, so I could not get this turned in on time. Like, what do I do with that? Like, I mean, I don't know this person's story. I don't want to know. That's private information. So it's, it's actually a card people play in a very, uh, I think, kind of obnoxious way to get out of responsibility. Um, but it's also, I think, a way, and I've seen this in policymaking. This is what finally uh, led me to write the piece policymakers, you know, elected officials using it as a shorthand for uh, a particular political program that they want to see passed, that if you disagree with it on policy terms, you know, which is totally legitimate, uh, you're actually someone who's going to traumatize other people because they'll, they'll say that's trauma. It's policy trauma to not do, you know, to not forgive all student loan debt. I'm like, you know, there are legitimate reasons to argue against forgiving all student loans. And we can have that discussion. But as soon as you say you're traumatizing someone, the discussion ends because that person's feelings have come into the into have entered the chat, as they say, and you're not allowed to question them. So that's where that that weird, and and then we have this whole thing about the body keeps the score, this best-selling book that mm-hmm. that started out as, as written by a guy who himself has now said we've gone way too far with the trauma talk but who was talking about the physiological experience of trauma. Can you pass trauma down through generations? There are fascinating experiments looking at that. But there's no, no consensus at all about a lot of this stuff. And he wrote this book that raised a lot of fascinating issues. And he talked about the, the therapy he's done with, with trauma victims. Um, but it's become a bestseller because people want to see themselves in that story. They're like, yeah, I've had trauma too. I got dumped by a guy and it was really hard on me. And I'm like, that's not trauma, as, as, you, mm-hmm. as you said earlier. That's life life sometimes really sucks. That doesn't mean it's a trauma.
0: Right, right. Because the, the, the if I understand correctly, and Vanessa um, read the, the book more deeply, I, 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 told, I just perused... I'm like halfway or, through yeah. it right now,
2: actually. It's an <laughs> interesting book. He's an interesting, interesting. guy. Right, yeah. But
0: if I understand correctly, Van der Kolk's point is, isn't... is not just about defining trauma. It's about exploring the idea of trauma being imprinted on you physiologically. Yeah, generational trauma. Right, Even mm-hmm. without getting into the generational question... It looks at the physiology of how trauma gets uh, imprinted. Exactly.
2: Well, and as you said, if you wake, if you've had an experience that's left some sort of trauma, that's that's the waking up in the middle of the night with your heart racing and, and recalling some other event that physiologically might have embedded itself in you in a way that might make future functioning more challenging. And that's what he's looking at. There's a lot of fascinating research on it. But again, there, there's also been a lot of overreach in our cultural conversation about that. So you see people taking that, that idea, which is yet to be completely proven, but has some fascinating uh, issues circulating around that the researchers are exploring. And they say, well, my grandmother was the victim of racism. And so I am traumatized by that. And I need special treatment as a result. No, 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 that's not how it, that's not what they're arguing now, gen- intergenerational racial trauma is one of the things that researchers are looking at. They're looking at a lot of those issues. They're looking at some of the most fascinating research is, is uh, when a traumatic event happens to a woman when she's carrying a child, what happens to that child? What, are there any, is there any expression of that trauma when the child starts to grow up? Fascinating research. But that's very different from what we're seeing culturally, politically, and socially in terms of discussing trauma.
0: So... Uh- I um I brought this question up with my uh with our friend uh, Misha Thomas, as I mentioned, because we I think foundational to our friendship, both personal and intellectual, was us arguing about this issue of trauma for like six, seven years ago. And
1: again, he's a psychologist, yes. so he actually deals with people right. diagnosed with oh, the and, and, and I
0: think he, he I think it's his his one of his obsessions. Um, this is his uh, hopefully soon to be written book. <laughs> so I asked him for his top line thoughts on this. He puts it as we are too lazy. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he says we are too lazy in separating the the literal diagnostic trauma from the metaphorical. I wonder what you think about that. It, but isn't a lot of the talk of trauma basically kind of uh, just a... Uh, We we talked about words matter earlier, but isn't just a a basic uh, expansion of the word to just mean I've had a bad experience? Or sometimes even this trauma is this Westworldy core memory that my entire identity is constructed around. I think it's a common thing that we have some memories that we can still trace current decisions back to. So maybe what happened to the word trauma, the the way it got abused, was that it just, it was just stretched and expanded to basically mean that, to be the literary tool that denotes our backstory.
2: Yeah, yes, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. I think it, um, I think the challenge is that the impulse to help someone who's suffering someone who is in pain is a really good one, right? That's empathy. Like it's, it's looking at someone who says, I am suffering and saying, okay, let's, let's try to give that a name so that it's, it, it's understood not just by you who's suffering, but by other people who might be able to help you. That part of the trauma talk, I don't mind. I get that. I get why people want to say this is trauma because they are suffering in some way and they need, they, they, they're they trying to figure out, figure a way through their suffering. I guess what, what uh, concerns me is that culturally, we always have these incentive structures that develop, that reward certain behaviors over others. And I was thinking back to it wasn't that long ago, right, that every other book about kids was like, you have to have grit, you have to be resilient. It's all Mm. grit, resilience, tough, tough, tough. And then suddenly now it's, you know, this kid needs extra time on a test because he was bullied in second grade, and now he's got to take the SAT. So I was like, how did we get there so fast? And I do think, again, we're getting it's, it's a kind of you know, we've, we've used the word grievance and victim a lot in our conversation today. And I think there's a strain of kind of um, rewarding being a victim because it's a clear position. It's a clear moral high ground to say, I've been victimized in this way. But what worries me is that that undermines what what we even understand to be victimized. Being called a bad name is not being made a victim. It's nothing akin to being the victim of a violent crime, for example.
0: You brought in the point of grit and resilience. Um, what's your con- response to the argument that this is you know, uh, a reaction to uh, a part of American culture that fetishized grit and resilience to uh, an unhealthy degree. Put aside the question of generational trauma and you are not allowed to use uh, the metaphor uh, of swinging pendulums.
2: Right, <laughs> good. You should always ban that from any discussion. Um, no, I think, I think it is probably in some ways a reaction to that. It's a reaction in some ways to the, to the sort of Fallout from the self-esteem movement that was inculcated in children, in particular, in the in the late 20th and early 21st century, um, uh, but the, there's a danger to the trauma talk in, in that that exists in a way that didn't with the resilience and grit talk. You can say to someone, "It's better to be tough and resilient," and that can be har- That can be harmful to to a person who has suffering from mental health issues or who has any other challenge that for which that message will just freak them out and make their problems worse. Right. But when you talk about when you when you tell a generation, particularly of young people who are at that moment in life, I'm thinking here of like, you know, they've they're just out of high school age. They're they're figuring out what the rest of their life should look like. If you inundate them with a message that the, the struggles of everyday life are akin to trauma, you are you are basically silencing the people who have suffered real trauma because it's defining trauma down that undermines people who who really are suffering from real trauma and it gives um, a moral and an undeserved moral high ground to people who just don't want to deal with their issues and say, oh, this life sucks. Because it's going to give them, one day they'll realize that. But if, if, if it's been swaddled in trauma talk, I don't think it's fair to them. It doesn't actually allow them the chance to see if they have a certain amount of resilience. So I agree. I think a lot of the grit talk was annoying at the time. I, I have two boys and they're very different personalities. They're twins and they're different personalities. And it, it always struck me as hilarious because I you know, read something, I'm like, well, that might apply to this one, but this one is not going to go for that. (laughs) So I have like a behavioral science experiment, you know, in real time all the time. So yeah, it's good that that we're talking more about mental health in particular, particularly for young people uh, right now, but we've gone, I'm not going to say pendulum, but the trauma talk (laughs) angers me not, not because the benefits that I think the people who use it think they're getting do not outweigh the, the harm it's causing to to genuine trauma victims.
0: And, and you're saying yeah. you're saying the harm is not equal and opposite. It's worse. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. The, me, the thing that it makes it's difficult for me to wrap my head around is like when when do you when are you compassionate to someone versus when are you coddling someone? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about the examples that you gave of like extra time for a test or not handing in an assignment. It's like how how are we supposed to be the arbiters of what trauma is legitimate what trauma like when someone's actually suffering something legitimate that requires our compassion and leniency versus when people are are exploiting a kind of cultural moment in order to be lazier or something but mm. like I don't understand how we're supposed to be for me I would always err on the side of compassion because I just don't I just won't know and potentially I'm going to be Coddling a lot of people in my surroundings because of that uncertainty.
2: So I think as individuals we should always err on the side of compassion. Absolutely. Like if I'm the teacher who has a kid who's like kind of trying to get pull one over on me, I'll think you know well what's the harm? It, like down the line they're going to learn this lesson. Something like one day they're going to say that to a boss, and they're going to lose their job, and then they'll learn that lesson. But. So I think as individuals, we should always err on the side of compassion. My concern with the trauma talk in particular is that it's being institutionalized um, in policymaking and and in in kind of cultural institutional ways that could potentially um, be harmful to those people in a structural way. So what I mean by that is, um, uh, this is going to sound like a strange example, but bear with me because I was born and raised in Florida and I went to Walt Disney World a lot as a kid. <laughs> they used to have a special line for people in wheelchairs. You know, if you, were, if you were at all, if you had any mobility issues at all, you went to the front of the line. Nobody minded that. I remember as a kid, like, watch it. You know, there were always people who were being wheeled to the front of Space Mountain and you're like, oh, yeah, they're, you know, it's great that they can ride the ride. Well, in recent years, they've had to completely overhaul the way that they give passes for that because people who could afford to do so were literally hiring disabled individuals to get to the front of lines. Like the whole family would go to the front of the line. They were hiring people. People would hire themselves out. They'd be, you know, to do that. And Disney figured this out and was like, what? Like, so there's a, this there's a thing where you've erred on the side of compassion. You're trying to help people who, who you know, need a little assistance. And it's completely exploited by horribly selfish people. So then the whole system has to change and they have a more rigorous process now, all for the good. But I always think of that when I think about like, what what harm does it do? It doesn't until it reaches a tipping point. It's like, what's the harm in my driving a huge gas guzzling SUV? I could do what I want. But if every single person drives one of those cars, there is a social effect that we all have to bear regardless of whether we drive an SUV. And I feel like with the trauma talk, we're not there yet. But I wanted to raise at least a little red flag that we don't want to go any further in that
0: Mm. direction. And there's the layer of this is not necessarily, or I should say, that a lot of the remedies that come out of this, uh, remedies to help heal trauma, aren't really necessarily helpful or geared towards the people with the original trauma that we were talking about, like people who experienced war or sexual abuse. Instead, a lot of the current day trauma therapy seems to be geared towards people's
2: Heady inconveniences. Mm. No, that's right.
1: Right. Self care won't fix trauma.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. Well put.
1: <laughs> but on the policy side, um, Christine, where where do you see kind of trauma informing policy, and and it potentially having negative consequences?
2: So the two areas that I would highlight that I've seen it most recently, um, educational. Uh, pedagogy. So you see a lot of like, we have to have trauma-informed this or trauma-informed that. So my first question is always when I read something like that, well, how do you define trauma? What's your definition of trauma? Who qualifies for that definition? And what does it mean to be trauma-informed? If that just means you're on the lookout for kids who might have some expressions of a, you know having had some traumatic experience, that's fine. Good, good educators should always do that. But if it means that you're, you're kind of Actively seeking out individual trauma in your students to make sure that they know that they're suffering and need to be this needs to be fixed. That's a different um, set of priorities. So I worry a little bit about how the the throwing around of trauma informed this and that, particularly in the wake of the pandemic, where a lot of young kids are still suffering their, the, you know, mental health issues, they're still suffering academically and socially. So our kids need a lot of help right now. And so I worry about that becoming the, the sort of shorthand to sweep under the rug. A lot of issues that have practical, like they need tutoring in math and reading. They need some mental health support in very specific ways to say, oh, now we have a, you know, we got all this money, we're going to have a trauma-informed curriculum. I think that's kind of an easy way out for a lot of these institutions. The other area, and on this, I, I become quite uh, passionate about it, um, is in crime. So if you live in a city where you have a victim support service, if you've been the victim of a crime, you know, usually you have some support service you can contact in law enforcement that will say, OK, like they, they support crime victims. They, do, they, they keep them up to date on things like when, you know, if they've arrested someone and they're going to go on trial, when's the trial? Are they on parole? When are they going to be paroled? Can I testify about this? All of these services that are there to help someone who, through no fault of their own, has been traumatized by being the victim of crime. And I think, unfortunately, what we're seeing in a lot of places is a, a, a devaluation of those services for those victims in favor of talking about the trauma that a perpetrator might have had that caused him to commit a crime. And I see this living in a city where you know, our, our juvenile laws in particular allow someone up to the age of 25 to claim, well, I'm a, chi- I, you know, I, I'm a child, so I shouldn't be held responsible for the fact that I you know, raped or beat someone. I have a real problem with that because I'm, I am here from people who, who seek victim services from the state and can't get them, can't really get the support they need. Meanwhile, a lot of tax money is going to help support, you know, people who are accused of pretty terrible things. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't have a rehabilitative aspect of our criminal justice system. We absolutely should. But again, it's about weighing the balance. Like, where should we, where's the balance there? Are you, are you spending all your time in social and cultural focus on the people who are committing the crimes and trying to solve, in an effort to solve that problem? What happens to the victims? Where is their voice? Where's their support? Are they just kind of left on their own to figure it out for themselves? Unfortunately, in a lot of uh, places, they are simply because the resources are being redirected or the resources just aren't there. And that worries me too, because if you're the victim of, if you've been the victim of crime, you know this you need to see someone on the someone in the system saying, I see you, I know what happened to you, and we are going to help you. Um, people who commit crimes need a certain kind of social support as well, but it's different from what we should be. The way we talk about it, what we do should be different for those people than for the people who have been victimized through no fault of their own. So that's another area where I really get... The trauma talk has really infused um, rehabilitative justice discussions in a way that I think isn't going to help us going forward. In a way, it also... <laughs>
0: it inverted the whole concept of trauma in a way and yes. took it from, from somebody who was, here's an immediately inflicted harm that we can, we can measure and, and the justice system was created to redress into, no, we can't really redress it because there is some vague trauma or con- contextual ambient trauma that may have uh, uh, precipitated the, the act, the crime.
2: Right, And, and it's not wrong. I mean, a lot of people who commit crimes have themselves been the victim of traumatic events. Of in their. I mean, absolutely. The whole but history again, of
0: criminology is ab- right, around those questions. Exactly.
2: But that's why the language that we use has to be really, we have to be disciplined about what we're talking about here. And when, especially when we're talking about victims. So you can be someone who has been the victim of childhood trauma. You grow up and you make a choice to do something that breaks a law and that harms another human being. It's not that your trauma doesn't matter. And it usually comes into play in sentencing. Judges weigh that. That's why we have, you know, during sentencing, judges listen to testimony from relatives and whatnot. But that is a very different experience. That that, If you've committed an act to harm another person, you don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card just because you were also traumatized. Most people who are traumatized don't do that. They don't make that choice. They don't go around victimizing more people. So we have to distinguish that we have to we have acts of right and wrong and and we can't excuse that using a language that actually really more applies to a to a victim of crime rather than a perpetrator.
0: So where do you see and how do you understand this flattening of the moral examination of crime where people seem to be narrowly concerned with either the criminal or the victim, but never both as part of a more complicated story of justice and trauma?
2: Well, I, I think actually this is an area kind of like histor- historians in a way, but uh, there's really creative and interesting academic and scholarly work being done in criminology and in criminal justice right now. Um, and it's not it, it's not politicized in quite the way that I think people assume it would be, because what what I the best of it is. Um, does something really interesting. It encourages people to hold two contradictory thoughts at the same time to say, okay, if you have, for example, a really violent crime-ridden neighborhood, um, you got to do two things. You got to deal with the underlying systemic issues in that neighborhood, whether it's poverty, racism, you know, any any number of things going on in that neighborhood. At the same time, you got to arrest and convict and put away the people who are being violent. Both of those things have to happen. And in a very polarized world where, you know, sensationalism sells, you see that becoming political. So you've got one side of the aisle going, it's all systemic. We just, if we deal with poverty, no one will kill each other anymore. So we don't need cops because we'll, we'll, we protect ourselves. I'm like, that's crazy. Like, that's just not, again, human nature teaches us that that's not possible. But then the other side thinks, well, these are just individuals making bad choices and we punish every single one of them. And, you know, we won't worry about the underlying things that we might might better the support and the money that we might spend on neighborhoods and on people who can go into those neighborhoods and help those people uh, see a different future for themselves and on rehabilitating, giving options for incarcerated people to earn a degree and to have employment afterwards. All those things, those should be conservative values too. That's not just a progressive idea. That should also be a conservative idea because it's better for society and it conserves um, you know, uh, moral principles of what we owe each other that actually used to be conservative. So that I think if we could... Let I would like to hear more from the the criminologists and the criminal justice <laughs> scholars who <laughs> do this stuff on the ground. And there are a number of programs where they've seen success doing both. They partner with the police and with local groups, and they say, "Okay, how are we going to stop this?" The police say, it, "You know, we're going to give you a chance, but if you blow it, you're going you're going to go to jail, and we we can't do anything about that. But if you come to us before a beef is going to be settled with guns, and we can intervene and help, nobody goes to jail, nobody gets killed. Like we can work, and the groups work with them. These this works." Very hard work takes a lot of dedication and determination, and it's really hard to do in such a polarized political environment.
0: Sure. Reminds me of the uh, Amsterdam compromise in The Wire. Right.
1: <laughs> Classic. I mean, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, But I, I guess what there should be like a big ding here every time that I get to say cognitive dissonance is the answer. Yeah.
1: I was going to say, it's I didn't true. want to interrupt you, Christy, but no, I was like, I right. I'm so happy. I was doing jazz
0: something. hands behind a- Yeah.
1: <laughs> cognitive dissonance. Jazz hands.
0: So that's my hobby horse.
1: I think you, we need to make a sound effect for right it.
0: exactly the <laughs> ominous sound effect for Chomsky, and then triumph <laughs> yeah. for cognitive dissonance. Um, yeah, but it's it's so your so you see it as it, got, it gets stuck when when people can't see the the whole picture. And it's funny because the problem with cognitive dissonance is because it, is that it creates that internal tension that people can't really handle, which kind of kind of configures into the To the big victim complex of like Mm, discomfort is unhealthy. That also fits with the the problem with speaking of diluting words of violence becoming a horribly abused Mm. word. And in your article, you mention the phenomenal phrase "policy violence."
2: Yes. Yeah. This is something I've been seeing in some federal legislation that's been proposed lately, and I don't like it. Just like I don't. Oh yeah. Policy violence. If you don't agree with XYZ number of proposals, there's no such thing as policy violence. You can talk about bad policy that might lead to violence. You can talk about good policy that can prevent violence, but there's no such thing as policy violence. This is the same frustration I feel when people say silence is violence. But then they also say words are violence. I'm like, right. no, just like let's get away from those manichean ways of even thinking about this stuff, right? Violence is part of human nature. We will always wrestle with it. We will never get rid of it. We, there are ways to tame and socialize and, and cult, that's culture's role. Culture and, and the family and institutions, that's what we're supposed to do is to try to, you know, we're descended from angels, right? <laughs> we're, we're, we're really not angels ourselves. We are constantly battling that in, in, as individuals and, and as a society. And we are a uniquely violent society if you compare uh, to others, but we're a lot less violent than we used to be. And we're historically in the kind of like many thousands of years scale, uh, humans are doing better than they used to be too. So I think we need, again, perspective is important, but if you're going to talk about violence, you cannot, that's another term I don't want to see defined down. I don't want to see that defined down and thrown around. Violence is a specific thing. It's just like the term truth. You don't have my truth. You don't have post, you have truth and you have untruth. So we we love to mess around with words, and pe- I, I get I'm getting very semantic here, but words matter. Words have power, um, and we need to be careful in how we use them, particularly in policy making.
1: I was just gonna ask, like, because it seems like a lot of what we're talking about is dilution of words, um, miss miss like mee- meanings shifting, changing. But I mean, this is kind of a thing that language does. It evolves. Mm-hmm. It shifts. It moves. It 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 takes on different. Meanings. I mean, barring everyone essentially self-censoring all the time. I mean, how are we supposed to a a police our effectively a police our language when it seems to be kind of taking on cultural life all all of its own?
2: No, it's a good question. I think I think I don't have problems with individuals using language however they want um, and and expanding. And I mean, actually, most of our so much creative work is doing just that. I start to want to draw a line when it comes to uh, those in power and in policymaking, because they're actually, there are real world consequences for people who don't have any say. I mean, if you put a word in a, uh, in a bill that has some sort of criminal uh, punishment attached to it, and someone falls uh, afoul of that law and, and, and argues, but I wasn't this, and the bill says that's what that is now. I mean, this is, now we're getting into Orwellian territory, but right. that's where words actually start to have a power and a potentially punitive effect On people who see, you know, if if you think this means X and the law says it means Y, um, that starts to have a lot of conflict. And again, it speaks to like undermining institutions. So I think this idea that we have common words and we, we have a common understanding of it has always been kind of a fiction. But at the very least, we have to have the debate if we're gonna. If we're the culture is going to come to a point where we're like everyone's traumatized. We're just there's a book coming out actually soon that's basically like everyone's traumatized. Whatever you know, we're <laughs> it's all like everybody poops exactly. It's like everyone's it's the everybody poops of pop psychology. <laughs> that book's coming out. So fine, then that's the that's the kind of cultural agreement we'll get to, and I'll just be the crank saying I don't like this. Um, but I don't think we have the agreement because we're not actually having honest debates, right? So this stuff is sneaking its way into things, and when you challenge it, you're actually accused of re-victimizing someone. The re-victimization thing is very powerful. If you say, I have a question with how you're using the word trauma. Well, you're re-victimizing me because I've experienced trauma. Well, how, where do you go with that? What do you do with that?
0: So I want to um, take it to the culture question. We talked about the important things. We talked about the... and uh, I, And I expressed my frustration about the important things at the top. One aspect that we didn't talk about is how much it's ruining fun stuff hmm. i really loved um what's her name Perule Sigel's article in the new yorker i think you, you also quoted it um mm-hmm. talking about the trauma plot as right. basically being i mean it used to be a clutch for lazy writers to give characters depth on the cheap but it has become way more than that and it's now basically the dominant storytelling device in TV, in literature, in film, American at least, where a character is not much more than the sum of its traumas. And it's funny because it fits with what we said earlier about the trauma being used both as a status symbol and as a way to uh, um, broadcast your personality. Mm -hmm. What's good for TikTok influencers is good for Ted Lasso
2: yeah i loved I loved that article because it it just laid out um, uh, it, the underlying theme you you read between the lines of that article, and it's a lament. It's a lament for the kind of of literature, the kind of storytelling where the reader is given the the um, the uh, wonderful privilege of trying to figure out some things about the characters him or herself, right? So you can read something. I just recently reread Middlemarch, one of my favorite favorite novels of all time, and I haven't read it in about ten years. And to read one of those books when you've aged and matured and hopefully gotten a little more wisdom is just so revealing. Suddenly you're like, oh, I really don't like that character. That character is actually really <laughs> passive aggressive in a way I never saw when I was in my 20s or 30s. And um, so that that um, uh, trust that writers, I think, used to have in their readers is is. Is undermined by this insistence of, well, we know everyone's feeling, we we have to signal to the reader. We're gonna, we're gonna assume they need to see the signal of the trauma plot because that's their own life. I mean, I I read books to escape, actually. I I watch great movies to escape reality. I don't really need a constant reminder of it, but I do think that that it, it, it's 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 underestimating us as readers, and that's what makes me sad. But the piece was excellent, at kind of laying out. Um, again, that there's an incentive for writers to do that. It's it, the the assumption is that it'll sell. And I, again, on this, I'll blame Oprah Winfrey with her, with her <laughs> book club. She was actually someone who popularized a lot of good things about talking openly about mental health. And I and you know obviously she's a sort of cultural phenomenon. But there was a there was a point at which she she'd gotten so many of her books were were sort of. Uh, trauma memoirs or trauma narratives. And, and, and that's what was, there was a sort of weird feedback loop where because she could move books and sell books, more people wanted to write books that Oprah would sell. And you started to see in the latter days of her, of her uh, book club uh, that that was most of what was coming out of it. And I think, again, the market sees that. They see books selling and they want more of it. But for authors, like trust your readers, like let them figure this stuff out. That's how you peel the onion in, in, in a literary mm-hmm. character is like trying to figure out how they define trauma is not necessarily how the readers will either.
1: Yeah, I, I also, but uh, I mean, I, I'm going to go slightly the opposite, which is like, I, I can't help but see the positives as well, though, because I'm thinking like Oprah Winfrey specifically has history of sexual assault mm-hmm. she's um, talked in her about, family, yeah. which she's talked about mm-hmm. openly. And I would imagine that her talking openly as well as preferring books in which people have gone through similar Uh, traumatic events uh, and survived or or however they've dealt with it in the books. I would imagine that that actually had a very profound positive effect on many people that had gone through something similar and then now felt the ability and access to to talk about it. So I guess I think I I am always kind of flip-flopping on this on this one because at the same time I understand that we're overdo we're overdoing it and delegitimizing actual traumas. At the other hand, I think like the more we talk about it, the more that people will be able to to acknowledge traumatic events and not feel this like burden of shame around them.
2: I think that's right. And I think like when she produced the color purple, like she got that movie made an amazing movie. Um, I guess I guess my concern is that when do we know when we've got, and the New Yorker piece was interesting to me because I think she was sort of, the, the, the article was basically saying, we've gotten to the point where that's the only thing we talk about now. And where have all those other stories gone? Where's all the mystery gone? And the, and so that's actually we never know when we've reached the tipping point. I guess. Oh, sorry, that's close. Not allowed to talk about tipping points. Um, <laughs> damn you, Malcolm Gladwell. Um, but the, <laughs> but the idea that we we one where okay the frog in the pot boiling. Can I use that one? <laughs> we don't know when the water is <laughs> boiling yet. So I I appreciated the the sort of pushback. I agree with you, and I think a lot of the the, the open conversations about mental health and and traumatic experience in particular, particularly for our veterans. Um, there's a whole class of people who were raised to believe they couldn't they just had to stuff that stuff back in and never discuss it. Now we can talk about it. It's very good. It's good for people. Um but when have we gone too far? Right. Because
0: I, I don't think question. that the the problem is that trauma is made explicit. And also I don't think that um it was gener it was absolutely lacking in literature from before the 1950s, uh, especially in non-American literature. <clears throat> the that the thing that's frustrating, and, and at least as, as I read uh, her article and, and from my experience of um, television and books and movies, is that it's started as a clutch. I don't know how to make my character rich and dimensional, so I'm just saying, like, like basically take um, uh, Maleficent. How do I make a mm. childhood villain right. interesting? I know. She experienced a metaphor for rape. Did we gain something from this? Is she now a more interesting or deeper character? No, but we we recontextualize a a childhood fairy tale. So there's that. Does it change our moral understanding of our actions towards um, Sleeping Beauty? Not really. Mm -hmm. And this whole cottage industry of giving old villains trauma, this nonsense that Disney's doing, aside from just being a marketing ploy for a generation that refuses to grow up, it, it, it all it goes back, I think, to to Wicked, which is actually, as a book, phenomenal and is not at all about a singular trauma. It's actually it's really about a journey of a character where we get to see the sociological context as well as her um, deeper psychology in a way that completely does not excuse her actions. But now it's just, hey, there's Gaston. He has PTSD. Here's Maleficent. She was maybe raped. It's so lazy. And that kind of becomes how people tell stories. And uh, an example from the New Yorker article that I loved was in Ted Lasso, it reached such satiation point where you couldn't just do one trauma. You had to have two characters experiencing flashbacks to their seminal traumas at the same time. Because, you know, every show gives
2: you one trauma. We give you two. But see, this, this is actually, this is a, it, it's a really important point you make because what we don't get from those characters, whether they're good or evil, is exactly that, the wrestling with the moral choices the characters make. And good storytelling doesn't, it, it shows you that it doesn't tell you. And the trauma narratives too often tell you, look, trauma. So whatever moral choices they make, remember the trauma, that doesn't actually allow you to think about how humans wrestle with moral choices. We wrestle with them every day And um, there are consequences uh, for some people in making the wrong one. And other people, terrible people, get away with things every day. That's actually the life lesson that much great literature and much great storytelling reminds us of. And And it's always fascinating to me when, when every every culture reimagines the fairy tales in, in a way that just like we get we get the television we deserve, so we're trapped in an endless reality TV feedback loop now. But like you get the stories you deserve and the way that we're retelling these stories says a lot about us as a culture and about a people. And and I do think we we don't like wrestling with those moral choices because we don't always come out looking great and we do often make bad ones and then we have to deal with the consequences. So the trauma narrative allows a little ethical escape hatch, I think, in a lot of these stories that is sort of lazy.
1: <laughs> it's because we're traumatized as a nation. There
2: we, we go. See?
1: <laughs> <laughs> we keep reliving the same patterns.
0: <laughs> I really loved what, your, your point um, oh my god! My microphone is dying. My computer is dying. This everything, everything is falling <laughs> apart. This everything is, is terrible. <laughs> everything is terrible. Everything is broken. So the that I love what you were saying because it's the shortcut to moral relativism.
2: Yes, it can be. Yeah, because
0: you can use the trauma plot to explore and wrestle with difficult moral questions, or you can use it to completely amputate the moral dimension from the story and say. This is, this is no longer legitimate to be judged. This is not in the realm of moral judgment. Mm. It makes things so shallow. We talked about the political consequences, but in terms of watching television, it's just not interesting at some point. Like I always start wondering, what do people find in this? And what's the... Because when it's not enriching the character or the story, is it now just a game? Like a twisted whodunit? Trying to guess what trauma the character had experienced. Ooh, was it a, was it an abusive father or a violent spouse, maybe? Ah, okay.
1: Well, on that note.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad I brought so much happy talk to the answer. No, speaking of spouses, <laughs> Vanessa.
1: What about oh no, I mean, do we have time I, or at the kind of at the end of time? Do you have more uh, a question for a time for one more question or Me? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you want me to ask about marriage? Yeah,
0: yeah why not? You, okay. you wanna you you want to go there? Let's go there.
1: <laughs> uh, so Christine, I just got married. Um, it is. It was not a decision I took lightly because I I I'm just don't think people need to get married. Um, and I read your article on the New York Times marriage section, uh, and I got the feeling from that article that you feel like marriage needs some supporters in its corner right now. Um, <laughs> w- would you mind defending that position? Why do, Why does marriage need some some help and and also sub sub question why why should people still bother to get married?
2: Oh, it's great. So you, you should know, like full disclosure, I wrote that piece and am have for many years now been divorced after thirteen uh-huh. years of marriage. So you know that's the context, and so I am not. So an, you
1: didn't share that detail. I'm, interestingly, uh, I
2: am not an objective observer. My my marriage was announced in the old fashioned New York uh-huh. Times wedding announcement. So like I've been there, done that. Um, I, so look as a, as a conservative ish person I, so, I I think traditional uh, institutions like marriage are great and should be expanded to as many so I, I'm pro-gay marriage I'm you know I actually this was this was always something that baffled me about the part of the conservative movement that saw this as a threat. I'm like no this is good like the more people that want to commit in this way because it's a hard thing to do, it's a hard thing to sustain and it's really good. It's good for the people who are part of the institution and it's good for society uh, to have people committed in that way because uh, it's because it's a gamble on the future that's a very optimistic one. And I think we have too little optimism about the future these days. Um, what bothered me about the restructuring of the Times announcement, so for those who don't know, it used to be very much like a social scene, like you know, the people who went to the certain schools married the same people from the other schools, and they right. all have like
1: Haverford the third, thank Thomas you. Haverford two, three, the third, three or four, has, five. <laughs> yes, has merged with assets with yeah, Eugenia <laughs> something something. Yes, yeah,
2: so that used to be it, and then they'd have like one vows thing, which was some quirky cute wedding. So now they've decided to go full quirk. It's like you've got to have and speak. This actually speaks to the trauma self care thing. <laughs> so many of the couples featured now have—they're telling the story of their mutually or or separately endured traumas and how they then came together and and marriage is going to solve all that, which of course is not why one should get married. Um, marriage is a different sort of commitment than that. But I I was I was struck by how again I found it oh, condescending. No is, that, is that a real thing? To read those. people actually.
0: Oh. People like announce that
2: they talk about their trauma in these new yes. Wasn't like a
0: line in all like Gen Xer '90s movies, like don't don't use me to heal your problems. I'm not I'm not your
2: uh, as a Gen Xer. Yes, this is why I hate this new iteration. (laughs) But I mean, people love it. They they wanted to they wanted they wanted insight. They wanted private details. I thought thought
0: that was like the Victorian idea of the man like I go hunting and sometimes the the gun is too loud. So now I
2: need (laughs) a a soft woman to support me after this. (laughs) Drama. Well, like I said, we grew out of that. Well, I tell you though, there's one thing, and I wouldn't not necessarily the Victorians, but but earlier eras had something that we lack, and that's the backstage area, right? We used to have, you know, when you go out in the world, and and especially when you make a public commitment, as serious as marriage, you're in, you're on stage, right? You're you're kind of presenting to the world, saying we we are making this commitment, and the reason it's formalized in that way is to hold you accountable, but also to remind people that that's what you're doing. That's why it's important. I think it's a, it's a civic obligation as well as a personal commitment. And that's a good thing for, for stable societies. But now, and then you go home and you can have any kind of marriage you want. You can divvy up the responsibilities this way. You can have kids or not. You can live here. I mean, you can, you can figure all that out on your own. That's your backstage. So what bothered me about these new announcements is they're putting all the backstage stuff in the announcement. I'm like, I just want to know like kind of where (laughs) you got married and where you're going to honeymoon and maybe a little bit about your background. I don't need to know all your weirded quirks and like, but people love the quirks. And I guess that's why it's there. I also felt like they were kind of defining marriage down, right? It's like, well, we won't Mm -hmm. just do marriage. We'll do people who are strongly committed. I'm like, then don't put it in a wedding section. Put that in a style section story or something. Marriage is its own thing. And I have a lot of respect for it, even though mine didn't last, I would certainly don't regret it. Um, and I know a lot of people who, who, you know, people remarry, people, marriage is important. And well, I, I, I
0: want to hear no, an ju- uh, expansion or a justification of that uh, statement. Where, where does strong commitment veer into marriage? Is it just because of the legal commitment?
2: Well, yeah. I, I mean, I think this—you're—you're—it's a public commitment. So people have commitment ceremonies, but don't legally get married. Right. Um, also, aren't they don't get the benefits of legal marriage, which still exists in our society, even though we've tried to make it more even. But they also—it's easier to leave. Divorce mm. is tough, even if you even if it's amicable and you get along, and you're like, okay, it's not working. Let's move on. It's still complicated, and it's part of that you, you have to enter the legal system to do that. So, so it's so. really about signing
0: signing onto the um, mutually assured destruction clause of yeah, of the marriage. There's
2: something to that, yes, for sure. Mm. <laughs> um, but I think it's congratulations. By the way, it's, it's a <laughs> wonderful you. thing. Let me just <laughs> blow up for all your romantic to mutual
1: <laughs> <laughs> No,
0: it's very.
2: But I actually, as a as a for me, it's it's a constant. Um, commitment to optimism about the future. Mm. And I love it for that. And I've, you know, I've attended many weddings and I hope one day to attend my kids' weddings. And like, it's, mm-hmm. it's such a good thing just for that. that.
1: That's how I feel about the decision to have kids, that it is the ultimate yes. d- a commitment to optimism, which I also, I'm also on the, I'm very much on the fence on this one. I think, I think it, it's kind of related to a little bit of the, the doominess that it, mm. it involved, like is via osmosis in my life uh, that it makes you think why bring children into this? Um, You'll see the world
2: I, with new eyes. That's why it's everything mm. is new again. It's fantastic. Mm. You may, may, should totally do it. Uh, uh, <laughs> Maybe may, may, may <laughs> give you a chance to finish on that on that
0: thought because uh, before we give you the outro question, just because I got into uh, an argument on the pod with uh, the brilliant Jacob Siegel uh, yeah. about the issue of kids because. I agree with Vanessa. I think it's such an, it's such the ultimate commitment that I, I worry about my own ability to actually live up to it. Not because of Vanessa's doominess, because I don't have that. I think that I think kids are a wonderful thing, but I also think that I need to be in full capacity to say that my life is effectively suspended and I need to be, I need to be there for that person. Um, and, he interpreted that as as being anti-natalist, which is completely not not my position. Very pro-natalists. I mean, I mean, maybe some people shouldn't have had kids, but generally, I'm in favor of that idea. We're
1: back to eugenics. Uh, so I'm, full,
2: I'm, circle. I'm <laughs> full circle. Full,
0: full circle. But but, but yeah, <laughs> gi- give us your just to end on an optimistic note. What's your uh? What's your big thrust for natalism? <laughs>
2: um, I. I I guess I would be considered pronatalist. I think, I mean, I have twins, right? They just turned 16. Um, so I only have like a couple more years where they're in the house. So all the quirks that used to drive me nuts, I'm like, oh, I'm going to find them yeah. so charming soon. But like, <laughs> look, it's a gamble. You can, and yeah. But what it does, I think particularly at this, Uh, unique historical moment where we have surrounded ourselves with devices and and tools that give us a constant sense of control. Like I can control this, I can press a button and get that, I can on-demand this, on-demand that. Having children blows up that worldview in a way that's (laughs) so useful and healthy because you Mm. cannot control the human being they become. You can on the margins guide them you, you guide you're constantly guiding you're constantly and, and you're right that at the very beginning you're it's you know trust me I know having two infants at the same time you don't I, I don't remember the first few years all that clearly Mm-mm. but you cannot control who they are they are who they are they emerge as this new person and you have to deal with them on those terms um, and that actually again this goes back to the beginning <laughs> humility it teaches humility and it also gives you hope in a way that I'm, I'm not, I'm generally a pretty optimistic person, but every time I start to feel doom and gloom, I think I can't, I can't just give up. I've got, they, I've got to leave a better world, at least for these guys and their friends, you know, like, and they surprise you with their generosity. And they're just, again, they look, everything is new to them um, from the moment they they emerge. And it's just, uh, it's a fascinating journey and it has a lot of challenges and it's not for everyone. I agree with that. But it's just it it will it changes you in ways you never had imagined. And I think the one cliche that's true um that everyone I know who's had kids will tell you is that it goes by in an instant. It goes by right. so fast. The days are long, the year but the years are short.
0: Mm. Mm. So to conclude, what do you think are the blind spots on the left and the right right now?
2: Oh, excellent question. Uh the blind spots on the right are uh Assuming that that there aren't broader social forces that might hobble individuals' ability to get ahead, the idea that if you just work hard enough, you know the the, the sort of Horatio the bootstraps Alger thing. myth, the bootstrap myth, right? I I think there's a lot to that, but in fact, I think history, particularly recent history and and you know post financial meltdown history, shows that's not always the case. And the idea that you can just um, believe that the institutions will figure this out if you just have enough hardworking, you know, meritocratic-based uh, policies. I think the right has to start to uh, think more systematically in a way that's thoughtful. That I think the left has been doing for years, not always correctly, but at least has been talking about systematic ways in which um, people are prevented from being their best selves. On the left, um, the big blind spot is the recognition that personal responsibility is a thing. If someone makes a moral choice to, do, to commit an act that, that, that harms another person, even if there were systemic problems or trauma, whatever there is, they are still responsible. Um, they should be responsible in the eyes of the law. They should be responsible morally for what they have chosen to do. And the excuse making on the left, I think, is, is, um, is starting to change a little bit on the margins, certainly in the crime debate and some other places. But that actually has led to um, a kind of weird condescension. Uh, towards everyday people and the their ability to kind of figure stuff out and do stuff for themselves. So that that that's what I would, off the top of my head, say are the two big blind spots. That's awesome. That's an excellent, yeah, excellent answer. That was a great conversation, Christine. Thank you so much. Yeah, okay. oh, thank you. It was such a pleasure. I really enjoyed it.
0: <laughs> thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. We are uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more on this topic, you can join us as a paid subscriber on Sobstack. Or if you want to support us otherwise, share us with your friends
2: and enemies. And until next time, stay sane.